0: Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the international affairs, foreign policy, global development communities, and anyone interested in a deeper understanding of the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience and produced in partnership with CGIAR the world's largest agricultural innovation network. I moderate a panel discussion that explores the relationship between climate-induced migration and security challenges. The panelists include Maureen Achiang, Chief of Mission to Ethiopia and Representative to the African Union and UN Economic Commission for Africa at the International Organization for Migration. Bina Desai, Head of Programs at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, and Alan DeBrow, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. This episode kicks off with some introductory remarks by Alan Nickel of CGIAR before I introduce the panelists for a moderated discussion that also includes some questions from the audience. For regular listeners to the show, this is a continuation of a series that began last year in partnership with CGIAR in which we explore various aspects of the relationship between climate variability and security. You will learn a great deal from this episode and from the series in general. I'm very excited for what is in store in 2021 as we explore other key aspects of the relationship between climate and security. To view this series and participate in future live events, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now over to Alan Nichol of CGIAR for some introductory remarks to frame our conversation about climate-induced migration and security.
1: Greetings, everyone, and as host, I welcome you to this webinar on climate-driven migration. Is it a threat to security? The webinar is convened by the One CGIAR Focus Climate Security Team. My name is Alan Nicol and I head up the Water Growth and Inclusion Strategic Program at IMI under the 1CGIR. Migration is the focus of a growing number of our project activities. This is also a topic where science and development meet contemporary policy challenges of key importance. Today is UN-designated World Desertification and Drought Day, which this year focuses on land restoration. Climate change is making this a more urgent task, not least to secure the livelihoods of millions of households in fragile environments. And some of these land issues are are at the heart of decisions made by tens of thousands of households to migrate within or from their their countries. As a science community, we need to help construct and deliver the right kinds of policy to tackle climate-induced migration and conflict linkages, whether local, national or international level. But we also need to remain mindful of the distinctions between rapid-onset displacements and the longer-term migration trends, both of which come under the subject matter of this webinar. Perhaps, above all, we need to avoid being overly deterministic. So, whether examining the potential for conflict between farmers and pastoralists in the Arash Valley in Ethiopia, or between neighbouring states in the MENA region, Mesoamerica or Southeast Asia, or indeed in Europe. In all cases, we need to understand deep structural factors relating to power relations, land access, or other historical and deep-rooted cultural issues when seeking to understand links between climate, migration, and conflict. In short, context is key. We also need to remain mindful of the gender intersectionality that cross cuts many of these factors, and more recently, of COVID-19 related disruptions to existing migration patterns. But there's an urgency involved in seeking greater understanding too because of rising uncertainty. And with this uncertainty becomes ri- comes risk. Distress migration and displacement are growing alongside a higher propensity for extreme weather events observed. And we take the mid 1980s, almost 40 years ago now as our reference point, Populations in many of the countries affected by the the Great Horn of Africa drought of that period are now two to three times larger. Ethiopia's population was just over 40 million then, four decades ago. It's now edging towards 120 million people. So in short, contemporary climate events and trends may be more extreme and impacts far larger populations. So the scale of the potential challenge has grown. In the past decade alone, weather-related events triggered an average of 21.5 million new displacements each year, according to the UN, more than twice as many as caused by conflict and violence. But at the same time, we must guard against over-securitizing the discourse on migration and displacement. Deep down, many movements are rooted in socioeconomic phenomena. Climate factors play an important multiplier and accelerator role but are rarely the single cause. The need for caution has been borne out in recent research conducted in Morocco, where migration is closely linked to family structures, youth aspirations, and a host of historical factors, as well as the impacts of successive droughts on parts of the country. So we need to be mindful that climate extremes are not just about resource scarcities as well. Flooding drove 10 million people globally from their homes in 2019. And something like 51% of all disaster-induced displacements between 2008 and 2018 were flood-induced. So as we take forward this discussion and this webinar conversation, to kick off, let's propose four pathways of understanding. The first is a climate variability-induced disaster and forced migration pathway, where sudden migration flows are catalyzed by rapid-onset environmental events, which may lead to conflict in areas of destination. A second pathway, a resource scarcity pathway involving competition over dwindling resources, both in areas of destination where newly arrived migrants may clash with host communities and in areas of origin among trapped populations unable to migrate outward. And thirdly, a resource abundance pathway where conversely climate variability improves environmental conditions in certain areas leading to rapid in-migration, and perhaps conflict between informal land users, for instance, and agribusinesses. And finally, the demonstration of non-sequential links between climate migration and security, involving a pre-existing tensions pathway where climate variability shapes outward migration, stemming from other conflict-related factors. But these are pathways for interrogation and discussion. So let's take them forward in our conversation today and lay the foundations for a knowledge agenda that will both support policymakers and create a more informed picture of actions that need to be taken on the ground. Back to you, Mark, and over to our three fantastic panelists and the online audience. Thank you.
0: My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. Today's conversation about migration, climate, and security is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast and is part of a series of episodes produced in partnership with CGIAR to explore the relationship between climate variability and security challenges. Today's conversation, we are going to discuss climate security and migration. Climate variability is causing massive numbers of people around the world to move, both across borders and within borders. And as climate variability intensifies, we can probably expect more and more people on the move. But what relationship, if at all, does climate-induced migration have with security? Is it a threat to human security and political security? Is climate-induced migration a driver of conflict? And what can be done to reduce the impact of climate-induced migration on security? To answer these questions and more, we have assembled an excellent panel for you all, whom I will introduce right now. Joining us from Ethiopia is Maureen Achiang, Chief of Mission to Ethiopia and representative to the African Union and the UN Economic Commission for Africa at the International Organization for Migration, the IOM. Joining us from France is Bina Desai, Head of Programs at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. And joining us from here in the United States is Alan Debrau. Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. Welcome to all our panelists. I will kick off with a few questions, but I will also leave time for audience participation. To ask a question of the panelists, please simply write your answer in the comment field of the live feed, wherever you are watching it, and we will get to your questions uh, after I pose mine. Uh, So with that, let us begin. And Maureen, I will uh, kick off uh, with the first question to you to get your perspective from the International Organization for Migration. Is climate-induced migration a threat for national and international security?
2: Thank you very much um, for that um, introduction. And um, at the outset, I'd like to thank CGIAR, for inviting me as the IOM representative to the African Union to be a part of this very important discussion. Um, um, right on to your question, is climate-induced migration a threat to national and international security? Um, if I had to give a simple response to that, I would say not any more than any other form of uncontrolled migration. But of course, we also must recognize that climate-induced displacement or migration has its specificities. Um, We know that national and international security are always potentially at risk when you have large numbers of people moving in an uncontrolled fashion, or even when you have steady small numbers of migrants um, moving in search of livelihoods, either in response to slow onset disasters or large numbers moving to escape um, a climate-induced calamity. Um, So climate-related and environmental factors have long had an impact on global migration flows. Because people have always moved from environments that could no longer cater to their livelihood needs um, uh, in uh, such attaining life in uh, environments that had better prospects, the challenge um, we all have is to manage migration in a manner that allows people to uh, basically seek survival when people need to move uh, because the environments can no longer provide for them, they will move. The scale of such uh, flows uh, both internal within countries but also increasingly across borders has grown in recent decades with the accelerating impact of climate change, and um, uh, climate change that is increasingly having unprecedented impacts on lives and livelihoods. Um, The simple fact of migratory movements being uncontrolled and ungoverned is a threat to security, both national, regional and international. Um, Uncontrolled and ungoverned migratory movements have the potential to undermine peace and security within regions, which explains why uh, regional bodies such as the African Union Commission have very robust peace and security agendas and departments that are looking at precisely these questions. We also know that when societies are rendered vulnerable as a result of diminishing resources due to the impact of uh, climate change and um, uh, 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 an impact that then results in intense intensified competition for resources, people will are more likely to um, uh, uh, fight against even communities within the same region. When such a situation is compounded, as it often is in the context of Africa, with other pressures like dense population and ethnic strife, the threat of armed violence is never too far away. Um, The other point I'd like to make is that conflicts um, uh, will often exacerbate existing conflict, uh, as I've indicated, but also Um, uh, a conflict over diminishing resources will trigger new dimensions to existing conflicts or even generate completely new conflicts that never existed before, Uh, such as deepening existing social and political struggles. We see many contexts on the continent where the struggle for political power has at its roots, the struggle over control over uh, 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 diminishing resources. And we know that um, conflicts that sometimes um, are contained within national borders have the potential to uh, spill over across national borders and even beyond the region um, in which uh, they initially occur. Um, In this regard, um, it's worth commending um, the foresight demonstrated by regional economic commissions um, in Africa, most notably, um, and most recently, I would add, IGAD, Uh, that have understood the need to develop regional protocols, transhumans protocols, that help to guide um, countries in uh, figuring out how to share scarce and diminishing pasture, even when this pasture is located across borders. And this is especially important in the case of pastoral nomadic communities. Um, This is even more important in the context of Africa when you consider that over one third of the world's uh, uh, nomadic population is resident in Africa, calls Africa home. Um, So there's need uh, to go beyond um, the formulation, the development of uh, these policies. There's need now to ensure that they are operationalized, um, developing uh, developing them is one thing. Yeah. Uh, the real challenge, oftentimes, is with how they're operationalized, um, so that they don't just gather da- dust um, on a bookshelf.
0: And, and we'll, so get into, we'll, we'll get into we'll get into that next step uh, in in a moment uh, later in this conversation. But thank you very much. That was a very helpful frame. For uh, the conversation that will now unfold, Uh, thank you very much, uh, Maureen. Uh, I'd like to bring Alan into the the conversation now, and Alan DeBrow, get your perspective on this relationship between climate-induced migration and national and international security.
3: Thanks, Mark. I'm gonna uh, thanks for the question and the organizers for having me. Um, I want to take this opportunity to to. I think from a little bit more of a research perspective um, because I'm a researcher and, and so that's where I, where I come from. And I want to first split the difference between what we what we might consider voluntary migration and less voluntary migration or the kind of forced migration that we're, we're talking about a little bit. So voluntary migration takes place when someone moves for employment or relative wage reasons. They can make more money somewhere else than where they live. And because governments right now restrict migration quite a bit. We have a, a situation in the world in which if one happens to be born in Honduras instead of in Houston, even if that person uh, attains the same education in both places, he or she will make a lot more money working in Houston, um, other, all other factors considered. So we need to keep that in mind that, there's, that we want to actually potentially encourage that type of migration or, or find ways for that migration to take place. So less voluntary migration or displacement is occurring when people have to rush away from their homes um, due to a natural disaster or due to violence. And both of these could be considered climate related. We've also heard a little bit about what we might call slow onset uh, types of of migration. so both of th- these could be be climate related, but they could also not be climate related. And the latter type is is a little bit more. It's, it's not trivial for us to necessarily attribute it to, to climate. So let's first think quickly uh, again about whether that former type, the voluntary migration, can really be a threat to the national or international security. Um, and it's really not likely um, but beyond relative wages, the main factors that drive voluntary migration are demographics and networks. So younger people are more likely to migrate for work and they're more likely to migrate to places where they have networks to help them find that work. Climate change could change relative wages um, and maybe networks, but the causal pathways would be quite indirect and really unlikely to affect security. So I think we can kind of eliminate that type of migration from our, our thought process. Um, and, um, considering migration due to displacement, there are some clear ways that it can threaten national or international security. Um, one thing to note that we haven't so far is that evidence suggests people who are displaced tend not to move very far, um, but they do want to move out of danger. Um, so when they do so, if they do, they, um, they don't assist. If they do not receive assistance, they can put pressure on local resources, as Alan discussed, um, and that can potentially cause conflict. Um, protracted situations caused by violence, uh, which could also be partially related to climate change, are also tricky and also can contend can cause competition for resources. So I think um, from a policy perspective, those are the types of things I think we can we can start to think about doing something about. Um you want to, I, I think I'm about out of time, so I'm going to go ahead and, and turn it back no thank
0: there. you. That was that was a, a very helpful uh, sort of frame as well. Thank you very much, Alan. A- and now I will turn to Bina to uh, help us frame this conversation from your perspective at the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. How do you understand this link between climate induced migration and national and international security?
4: Thank you very much mark and i'd also really like to commend cgir for um really looking into this topic and thank you so much for the previous speakers for in a sense saving me time because uh, you know alan what you were just referring to the difference of uh, voluntary versus forced migration we all know it's uh uh, it's, it's not often that clear cut but we must try and understand better what we mean by climate induced displacement and we really need to understand how it comes about um, and what we makes what makes what we see today really different, in a sense, to, to or from what is an age-old um, adaptation strategy, uh, economic and social development strategy, really. And what makes a difference from our perspective is uh, a few things, three things, really. The scale, then who is on the move, and also the convergence that was already mentioned with a lot of the other drivers right now. So the scale we're reporting year in year out on millions um, and tens of millions of new displacements, so instances where people have to flee in the context of disasters, of which, as was already said before, uh, the vast majority are weather-related. For 2020 alone, we recorded more than 30 million new displacements in the context of weather-related disasters. And these are obviously subject, potentially subject, uh, to the impacts of, of climate change. Who's on the move? It is uh, not often those that have uh, most opportunity and most options when it comes to displacement. It is those that are vulnerable to the impacts uh, of extreme events, uh, of eroding livelihoods, of destroyed uh, essential uh, biosystem services, et cetera, et cetera. And then the convergence that others were already touching on. So obviously, it's it's recognized by now that climate change is not usually a trigger in itself, but really converges with a number of socioeconomic um, uh, factors. Um, But what is really new when we look at our reporting and our data is that we see more and more um, displacement occurring in regions uh, where, in a sense, the drivers and triggers for both conflict and disasters collide. And this means that we have an increasing number of people on the move who've already been displaced either by conflict and then are repeatedly displaced, again displaced by safe floods uh, due to um, uh, camps or informal settlements in, in hazard-prone regions and vulnerable housing. Um, but it also means vice versa that those who are on the move due in the context of disasters and so-called climate-related events um, can also then find themselves subject to uh, situations of of violence, uh, become more vulnerable, and, and, and new risks are generated through that. And yet, though we see these complexities emerging, the focus in a lot of the analysis today is still on the hazard, on the climate aspect uh, in the equation. And we do think that that needs to to change. And I think we can discuss that uh, in a second. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you to the panelists for helping to frame this conversation. I always appreciate when we have experts who focus on a similar issue, but come at it from different perspectives. Uh, it helps, I think, expand all of our perspectives on these issues. So thank you to each of you for those framing remarks. Uh, I will now have a series of very more specific questions to each of you based on your own expertise. Uh, before I ask those questions, though, I do want to remind the audience that you too can can pose questions to the audience to the panelists by uh, simply writing the question in the comment field of the live stream wherever you are watching this in YouTube or wherever. Uh, so Maureen, I will uh, go to you. As Alan Nichols stated at the start of our conversation, CGIR Focus Climate Security has identified four major pathways that represent common event sequences which may, given the right mix of contextual factors, link climate variability, migration, and conflict. In your opinion, which top two policies or interventions are most suitable to prevent climate-induced migration from transforming into conflict?
2: Thank you very much uh, for that follow-on question. Um, um, I've uh, looked closely at what CGIR has come up with, and um, I would say, uh, I would come up with two points. One is the identification of regions that are most vulnerable to climate-induced migration, both foster and vol- voluntary, and then figure out okay. ways to target aid information, contingency planning capabilities, um, which could help provide customized responses to uh, 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 those displacements when they do happen. Second is viewing regular orderly migration as a proactive adaptation strategy for populations who are under pressure as a result of um, uh, uh, climate change and the often resulting environmental uh, degradation. Thank you. Thank you. Uh,
0: And uh, Alan, I will turn back to you. How can CGIAR land, water, and food systems science inform policy, programming, and finance that could mitigate the climate migration security nexus and improve the prospect for peace in fragile settings?
3: Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, So first, I think we, CGIAR scientists, can take it upon ourselves to do more research into developing climate-resilient agricultural systems in a variety of agro agroecologies as we transition to one CGIR in the next few years. Um, we've, To the extent that our science can, can help build this resilience, the types of shocks that cause displac- displacements now might not cause as much displacement in the future. I don't think we want to speak in absolutes, but in relative terms. Um, we've started doing some of this research with our partners, but I haven't seen great evidence about what works yet in that space and what doesn't. So I think we can also help, uh, think through evaluative strategies for that type, that type of programming, um, and help build that evidence base. I don't want to stay that state that this type of research will actually reduce net migration on the whole though. Um, as we know, uh, economic growth from in low income countries tends to actually increase voluntary migration um, from those countries uh, in the medium to long-term because people can better access the resources to make investments in voluntary migration uh, for their children. Um, And second, I want to say that it it's really difficult for an agricultural oriented consortium like CGAR to work on agriculture in already fragile settings. Um, You know, agricultural production takes both time and investment by farmers and those investments are risky if they might need to flee at any moment. So we might think here of how uh, we can help uh, do research about what types of early warning systems work well um, research about what types of food or cash transfers can, can work to, f- to get into fragile areas to ensure that, that those stay uh, food and nutrition secure. So to the extent that such people already have, have moved we can do research about ways to make market systems around internally displaced camps and refugee uh, uh, IDP camps and and refugee camps work better, so that prices don't rise for staples, um, and so that, that that integration takes place in a in a more uh, uh, healthy manner. Uh, thank you. Uh, and now let me turn back
0: to Bina. Uh, you know, what are the main bottlenecks or challenges in eliciting robust evidence to qualify and quantify the climate migration security nexus? In other words, what is preventing us from getting the data that we need to understand these linkages? And what innovations do we need to help us identify drivers and consequences of climate induced migration?
4: thanks a lot, Mark. I mean, let me start with saying we've already made quite significant advances, but it's true that there is still a lot to do and There the, are the two main areas I think where we could actually make more advancements uh, um, and that's really in filling the data gaps, the availability but also accessibility of data um in three ways i mean it 's in a way of just you know increasing the volume of data and coverage of data not just on Uh, extreme events and movements related to those, but really these slow-onset events that were mentioned and um, the processes that then lead to displacement further down the line uh, and then monitoring displacement and migration in these contexts. We only, even for sudden-onset events, um, have solid data since 2008, so we really cannot speak about trends even now um, in a a convincing manner. Um, So that's where definitely everyone can work together. It's not just the research community. On the contrary, actually, for disaster displacement, our main data sources are government um, institutions and government sources. Uh, The UN is a huge partner in this as well, and and local organizations. So everyone can work on that together. Um, And then secondly, not just understanding and tracking movements. at at the point in time where they happen, but really further down the line, uh, collecting data and, 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 and looking at what happens to people after an event, weeks and months and even years after, because that's where we have the biggest data gap right now. And that's where... The impacts or our understanding of the impacts of displacement and climate related displacement uh, onto security, but also economic impacts, et cetera, are severely hampered. So there are very few situations where we actually know what happens to people when they, uh, uh, once uh, an event uh, has passed or the situation improves. Indeed, what we see more and more, though, for specific instances is that in those contexts, often local integration is the preferred option for many people, which, of course, has significant implications, again, for uh, be it urban planning, land use planning, uh, but also security policies. Um, and. The final point tied to the whole data accessibility and availability remit is um, our lack of coherence on concepts uh, and also categories. So every data provider, data collector, uses their own categorization, their own questions, their own ways of storing data, which makes it very difficult to stitch together different data sets, even within one specific location. And that is something that could be relatively easily addressed. And maybe I would close on one point um, around uh, the science that that uh, Alan was also advocating for. I think we really have just started to use uh, risk science uh, in an appropriate manner in this context, and we should continue investing in it, but do so responsibly—not just come up with big numbers, but really look at you know the latest um, uh, uh, models and advances as many as possible really to correlate and not just rely on one set of approaches Uh, that will allow us to really understand better the human cost. There has been huge um, uh, improvements done on assessing physical damage, infrastructure, uh, economic losses, but really the human cost of climate change. That's still where we need to look into more. Thank you.
0: Uh, Thank you. So um, I, Want to, I'm happy to keep this conversation going. I want to just briefly check in with uh, Reese from CGIR Reese Bucknell-Williams, to see if uh, do we have questions from the audience just yet. If not, I'm, I'm happy to keep this going.
5: Hi, Mark. Uh, Yes, so uh, we're having lots of questions coming in from lots of platforms, including YouTube and LinkedIn. Um, So uh, first question, uh, I think, would come from um, perhaps Sonia Alam. She says that uh, climate change is a reality, uh, but at the same time, there are technologies and advancements which are helping to adapt to climate change. So how can these adaptations perhaps best be captured in studies? So, if, for example, I think I believe Sonia is perhaps a social scientist or researcher. So um, so I guess the question is, like, how can we capture some of these sort of um, migratory adaptation practices or innovations that are happening in uh, in different places? Uh, yeah, thank you. It's on the screen there. So perhaps uh, maybe this is a question for Bina or Alan to, to re- reply to or Maureen.
0: So, Alan, why don't we turn it over to you? Do, is, is, do you have a, a sort of a gut response to that, uh, that general really, question? Yeah,
3: thanks. Thanks, Mark. That's a really tough question in a way, um, in part because uh, I think I was getting at that a little bit, although maybe I wasn't as clear as I should have, um, have been in that uh, a lot of what we well, I was getting at that a little bit in that I think we need to do more research around those resilience strategies to try to help deal with adaptation to climate change. That said, adaptation to climate change is already taking place. um, And, and that's what uh, Bina was getting at, or not Bina, um, our questioner was getting at. Um, The, the thing is, is that we're always changing the environment. Um, So we essentially, um, since we're always changing the environment, um, we're always changing the way that the the responses the the we can be exacerbating responses or 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 not. A good example is actually um, in the Cox's Bazaar area in in Bangladesh, where there are Rohingya um, refugees, um, and there's a lot of concern that they have degraded the environment around that that area. Uh, so much that that the monsoon season will cause more flooding than we would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we have to think about that in both ways, and our models really need to take that into account as we as we model these these
0: problems. Uh, thank you, Abina. Any uh, sort of reaction to either the question or Alan's response?
4: Thank you very much. Now, I think the question is spot on because indeed we've also now for the last few years said we need to go beyond looking at the challenges and really looking at what is already being done and what can be done, what works and what doesn't. And there needs to be more effort in really documenting, uh, as, as Sonia was saying, um, you know, the adaptation efforts at the community level, um, at, at sub-regional level, etc. One example, for example, maybe from Bangladesh, where there is a very um, ambitious effort uh, which is starting to emerge to look at investing explicitly into secondary cities uh, to attract in-migration into those cities to counter in a sense the expected um uh, migration and also displacement from uh, hazard prone coastal areas in Bangladesh into Dhaka and to make sure that you don't have you know an already at risk city exploding and generating new risks for marginal populations who are already com- arriving uh, in a city with very little resources instead attracting them into other uh, places that could then provide better services, better infrastructures, uh, uh, access to education and health, etc. So those types of examples, you know, those, those need to be shared more widely and, and ultimately, I think, ultimately a mechanism for countries to learn from each other uh, more directly rather than having to go through international fora and, and agencies.
0: Uh, Maureen, do, do you have a reaction to anything that the previous two panelists uh, had just remarked or to the question?
2: Um, Only uh, to agree, really, that um, uh, I like the example Alan gave of the Rohingya refugees and the impact they have had on the environment. We've seen in a lot of IDP settings, including right here in this region, that whenever IDPs come into an area, it ends up being a lot more degraded and therefore a lot more vulnerable uh, to the impacts of flooding than would have been the case had that displacement never happened. So it becomes something of a vicious cycle that Mm. we must through uh, um, better uh, planning in terms of responses to displacement, uh, we must get better at to ensure that we don't end up in this um, uh, seemingly unbreakable vicious cycle where there is displacement as a result of climate change and then worsening floods. And that leads to even more displacement. But it seems that we keep talking about it, and it it doesn't necessarily result in practical changes on the ground. Um, And I have a lot of respect for the work of those of you in academia like um, Alan, Um, but my challenge as a practitioner is how some of that knowledge impacts action on the ground. And sadly, we see little of that impact on the ground, despite the knowledge being there. So the question was on um, uh, the science, um, but I have, um, I, I guess, frustration with the fact that there is that policy frameworks are in place, the knowledge is there, but it's not translating into. Um, doing it better next time. With the next crisis, we seem to make the same mistakes we have made in the past.
0: Well, well, let's use this opportunity right now as a way to advance that conversation then, Maureen. What, what specifically would you want from the academic community that would help you in in your job? What policy or research, what research agenda would you assign to the academic community to to help you better do your work?
2: Well, I don't think the failing is on the part of um, uh, academia, Uh, because again, I emphasize that the knowledge is there. It's just not impacting action on the ground. I think we need greater interstate cooperation uh, to discuss how some of these um, issues uh, or challenges can be handled, even though uh, uh, within countries, but equally across borders. Within countries, we need more of a whole of government approach to deliberating solutions to uh, internal displacements as well as displacements across borders there isn't nearly enough of that we also need to um, uh, uh, as migration practitioners um, working with you in academia to do more to depathologize migration and mobility. I think there's a general sense that migration is a problem. And if that is the starting point, it's going to impact what solutions we devise in response to some of these challenges. So I think there is uh, the need, as um, Sonia, I believe, underlined uh, in her opening remarks, the need to remind ourselves that migration is humankind's uh, oldest coping strategy to changing environments and embrace it, the challenges on how we manage it better so that we harness its positives and minimize the downsides.
0: Uh, thank you. Uh, I believe we may have another question from the audience. Reese?
2: Hi, Mark. Yes.
5: So, actually, we have a, a question from uh, Lesogo Lipo- Lipota from South Africa, and I think it follows on very nicely from uh, the point that Maureen just made. So, so Lesogo's question is: um, some events uh, are sudden, um, such as floods. Uh, these have been referenced before, um, and can I guess to some extent be predicted in some way? Um, uh, so, perhaps if, you, if if there are people living in floodplain areas, so would it be possible, perhaps, to pre-plan in the air, in those areas of mitigation strategies. So so is it possible to do that? Who should do that? And how can it be done? And maybe Maureen would be a good place to start on that question.
2: All right. Um, I'm happy to take a fast stab at that. I mean, of course, uh, the questioner is very right. Some of these sudden onset disasters are difficult to predict. Um, They come on unexpectedly. But important to add that we know areas that are prone to flooding. And the way to avoid displacement as a result of flash floods is to ensure that people do not reside in areas that are already designated as flood prone. That's one way to do it. Um, Second is to have um, national systems in place, uh, robust systems in place, to respond to crisis um, of this sort as and when they arise, so that um, the, there is an entity in a government responsible for it, and lessons from previous disasters can be factored into new disasters. Um, I think that would be um, my short response to that question.
0: Uh, Alan and Bina, can I have you jump in? How about Alan? Go ahead, and then we'll we'll turn to Bina.
3: Um, Sure. I think on floods, um, you know, what we do in the West is we have lots of big insurance programs um, for floods, particularly at the national level. But essentially, we want to guide people to actually migrate out of the really flood prone areas um, because they just become too expensive to um, to to insure. So just to to give an example, um, I think. Uh, I understand like the Miami beach area um, private insurance companies are, are trying to shy away as, as much as they po- possibly can from, from providing insurance just because they feel like the Miami beach area is going to uh, wash away in the next say 40 to 50 years at, at, uh, at, at most. So I think we need to think about that. Um, think about insurance programs, Uh, At the public level and to think about um, about trying to guide people out of out of those areas so that they don't uh, they don't end up there anymore.
0: And Bina, any any uh, thoughts on this question?
4: Just maybe a small addition to follow on from the insurance point that Alan made, which is very right. I think what we can also do is make the case for this type of, uh, you know, development of these types of insurance policies. Also for the types of regulations that are needed that can ultimately be only put in place by government. Um, If we look at flood risk or flood related displacement risk worldwide, uh, we already heard previously that a large percentage of displacement uh, occurs in the context of floods every year. And the risk of displacement in the context of floods is uh, bound to rise by 50% for each degree of additional temperature uh, uh, in the context of global warming is what we uh, recent studies have found. So we... and. Not just that, in terms of the global numbers, the hotspots where this occurs will also change. And that can be actually mapped out fairly clearly. And as Maureen was saying, in specific locations, people have a good sense of where seasonal flooding occurs. A lot of the displacement we record is in the context of repeat seasonal uh, displacement. So there is a lot that can be done.
0: Thank you, Um, Maureen. In your opening remarks, uh, you said something that that I think struck me and that framed how I understand conversations about migration, which is, you know, it's not migration itself that that's not the challenge; it's the uncontrolled and ungoverned migration mm-hmm. that poses the real challenge. Um, and oftentimes, we go it seems from discussions about uncontrolled and ungoverned migrations and use a security framework and security understandings and security discourses to to sort of understand the implications of uncontrolled and ungoverned migration. Are there other policy frames that are perhaps more useful in understanding the implications of uncontrolled and ungoverned migration?
2: Um, uh, Thank you very much, Mark, for that question. Um, And I would respond to it in three parts. One is to say that um, we need, uh, and the African Union has done this very well, we need to change the perception of migration in the public mind so that migration isn't necessarily viewed only through a security prism as has tended to happen. Um, And we see that changing in Africa in recent times with the uh, uh, adoption of African Union policies that seek to uh, view migration through a developmental lens and look to look to um, uh, move the continent towards greater integration and with a strong emphasis on the need to share resources across borders. And here again, I can't overemphasize the importance of the transhuman protocols that we see um, sprouting in different regions on the continent. This is clear recognition that. Nomadic populations will move to where the pasture is. So let's find a way to ensure that that movement takes a regular form and there is that understanding that we can share. Um, the uh, two key protocols here worth highlighting the free movement protocol and the Africa continental free trade area, which are moving Africa's trident in the direction of continental integration. With greater integration, there's less chance of communal conflict especially across borders mm. over diminishing resources. So one would be that broad point around depathologizing the V of migration in the public mind. Second would be instituting whole of government approaches and whole of society approaches to policy making so that migration is looked at broadly rather than narrowly through a security lens. And then um, third and I touched on this earlier is Promoting interstate dialogue. It will take governments in regions working together to really um, uh, fundamentally disrupt a lot of the conflicts that we see occurring um, across borders over scarce resources. So um, interstate dialogue and cooperation on these issues.
0: And your your final remark about interstate, perhaps even multilateral cooperation on these issues, I think comes at a very unique moment in the kind of recent history of, of multilateralism. We had the 2018 uh, Global Migration Compact, uh, which the United States rejected. Uh, now, it seems with the new Biden administration, the United States is once again reemerging as a multilateral leader. Um to To Bina first, what opportunities in this sort of re-emerging multilateral moment in which there is more appetite for international cooperation than there was prior? do you see uh, that may sort of move policies, move the conversation forward on climate induced migration and security and uh, policy outcomes that might that that might uh, benefit this conversation?
4: I think there are a huge number of opportunities. Maybe one example is under the UNFCCC, where, of course, we have high hopes that the U.S. coming in now uh, as a strong actor, uh, more advances can be made, uh, not least on the recommendations of the task force uh, on uh, displacement um, uh, and and their recommendations on how to avert, minimize and reduce the impacts of uh, climate change and related displacement. Uh, because that's really where ultimately now as the recommendations, as Maureen was saying, the knowledge is there, the recommendations are there, implementation is key now. Um, and we do see that there's a huge opportunity um, uh, now with the administration actually clearly making uh, climate-related migration and displacement—a topic of uh, a key topic of the agenda—to um, to, to not just uh, change, you know, see changes in uh, American uh, policies uh, themselves, but really on leadership at the international level. Um, and I think, uh, just generally, as you say, a emergence of multilateralism will be uh, a key to anything related to um, not just uh, even internal displacement, but particularly, of course, cross-border movements. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Uh, And Alan, let's uh, have you uh, join on this question from your perspective in the science and research community.
2: Sure.
3: So the science and research community has always been perplexed about uh, at least the economic. uh, Those of us who study economics have been perplexed because um, when you look at all of the benefits that we see both to migrants, to their source households um, and then to the, the destination economies, Um, it's almost all of the evidence is pretty positive and you have to kind of really scratch, uh, at data really hard to find negatives. Um, it's all got to do with perceptions. So we need to really turn around the perceptions of those who are anti-immigration, um, in, in specific ways. I think one, to me, one of the most, um, maybe compelling things to try in the near future would be to try, um, more seasonal migration programs both into uh, economies like europe and and the united states um if we can do more seasonal official migration we'll all be much better off we'll be able to study those benefits and see that they're they're massive um just want i mean the the uh the demographics are all in Western Europe, Japan, even China, to be honest, um, and the United States, all state that we need, we're going to need migration both um, from, we're going to need more in migrants in all those places, both from a a labor market perspective, but also from like a pension perspective. Pension programs are going to collapse without more migration. Just to give an example, there is not a single sub pre-COVID, pre-COVID, There's not a single sub national region in Europe that's at replacement fertility. So they're all below two, um, which means that they're all going to start shrinking and that's going to affect their labor markets and they're going to need young, healthy people to come in and, um, and work. And there are plenty of people in Africa and the Middle East who are willing to do that. So, Um, We just have to get over the we need to find ways to get over the political tensions um, among groups who are worried about their their jobs going away to make make this work.
0: I I saw Maureen vigorously nod her head in response to Alan's remark. What what uh, inspired the uh, the the head nodding?
2: Well, I mean, I I think it's just, I I couldn't agree more with everything he said. Um, And it it often will seem too good to be true that a win-win solution is possible, but it actually is. Oftentimes what's lacking is the political courage to sell migration policies uh, positively to domestic audiences. Um, But for as long as the need for migration exists and goes unacknowledged, we will continue to push migrants into the hands of smugglers and traffickers, um, rather than have governments at the center of matching labor supply to labor demand. Um, so again, I'm nodding because I'm agreeing furiously with everything Alan is saying. And um, I think uh, it's, it's one of those instances where it's, it's actually true, even though it's good. It's not a question of too good to be true. Um, there is a win-win solution here that's possible. But Mark, if you allow me Um, Can I also just use this opportunity to make uh, the following point, which is that, uh, especially on the African continent, the normative framework is in place. Um, A lot of the challenge that stops us from moving to a more positive place in terms of migration governance lies with the implementation. The migration policy framework for Africa, the Kampala Convention are two key um, AU policies that seek to enhance protections for displaced populations, especially uh, populations displaced as a, result, as a result of climate and environmental degradation. And at national level, a lot of uh, countries um, have developed the needed policies. Just to cite a very specific example, I am conducted a study on environmental migration in West Africa And we documented 50 national policies and frameworks and strategies um, to address human mobility in the context of environmental uh, uh, degradation and climate change. But these are not being implemented. And if implemented, they could go a long way to addressing the challenges that we face perennially and have to deal with through a humanitarian rather than a developmental lens so that the cycle continues and uh, remains unbroken. So I'd really like to emphasize the need to operationalize um, the rich body of norms and policies that are already in place.
0: And and Bina, I saw you nod your head in response to the last remark from Maureen. So I'll I'll give you a a minute to uh, kind of offer some of your concluding thoughts and then uh, we will wrap up this portion of the conversation.
4: Thank you very much. No, I was nodding very much because I agreed not just with what Alan said, but particularly with Ma- with Maureen said. I mean, the African Union and some of the sub regional organisations have been really leading uh, on on a lot of these these issues and made. You know you know really bold in a sense statements uh, with for example the Kampala convention that was men mentioned that is a legally binding version for the region of the guiding principles on internal displacement that some in the audience may have heard about and and which really lay out you know uh, uh, in a sense our handbook of how to uh, address the risk but then also and, and and reduce the risk of displacement but also um, you know respond more effectively and I think there it, A lot is, as she said, is in place um, where we still face some of the gaps, obviously, from our perspective, as are, as I said, on the evidence uh, that is not just in terms of just the evidence per se, but packaged in a way that can be then uh, operationalized. So, really matching up policy with the science um, in a way that allows for clear work plans and strategies to emerge and budgetary allocations to be made also in a way um, uh, that that can actually be uh, appropriate to, to existing resources. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you all. Thank you to Maureen, to Alan, to Bina for this conversation. I feel like we have a policy agenda now ahead of us that we must execute and action uh, and and take on and work towards. Uh, thank you all for for your contributions. As I said at the outset, I really appreciate when we have experts on a similar issue but who come from different backgrounds all contribute to this very policy focused conversation. So thank you all. Uh, I am now going to turn the camera back over to Alan Nickel for some re- conclusion remarks. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.
1: Thank you so much, Mark, and thank you to the three panelists. You know, I've been vigorously nodding my head here. In fact, I have a crick in the neck. I was nodding it so much. Um, it's so good to hear this this narrative on, on the need for better governance of, of migration, the positive aspects, the understanding that people are seeking livelihoods, that it's normal, that it's as old as the hills, that, you know, there's nothing... Bad or wrong, migration shouldn't be problematized. I think maybe that was a term you used, uh, uh, Maureen. I think there are three elements here that that really came out for me in this conversation. One is this whole governance question, and I'm glad the Global Compact came in at the end, and and you know massive attempt in 2018 to take forward international thinking. Um, but also the regional dimension that you've mentioned, the the protocols within IGAD, the IGAD region. Um, the whole agenda in Africa. And I've spent several years living in Uganda, which is incredibly open to refugees and internally displaced people, um, and really can shine a light on policies in other parts of the world where where there are more barriers um, and more problems and hindrances to, to migration. But I think that the need to support that sort of economic view of migration, and to, as I think you said, Alan, um, how to to get policy to think differently about this, how to build those seasonal programs, how to create um safe routes to uh the key economic powerhouses in the world, whether it's Gulf states, Europe, uh, North America or wherever or, or East Asia, where people want to move, where they want to work, and where people need those those migrants over time. You know, we need to this narrative needs to change effectively. Um and we need to find ways of doing that. So I think interstate cooperation is, is absolutely key. And that came through in, in the conversation very clearly. But so did, and maybe from a research community perspective, this this issue about data and knowledge. Um, and perhaps there's, there's an issue there, I think you've mentioned, Bina, the incoherence of some of that, um, let alone the kind of uh, the, the challenge of, Many different actors engaged in, in, in knowledge and, and data generation in particular contexts on migration, not sharing enough, but also using different terms. And you've mentioned different kind of data protocols. And I think there's something we really need to think about there in the 1CGIR and partners like IOM, ISDC, etc. how to work together to to standardize data and to, to share it more effectively, because ultimately policymakers will need those data sets to to follow the trends, to understand the the impacts, and to examine the outcomes, and ultimately to make and implement better policies, so I think that's a, a really important point. I guess the final thing I would I would identify is the issue of vulnerability, and back to climate. You know, um, f- certainly from the conversation, in a way, climate was there, but it was it was. You know, kept to, to to one side because the bigger issues around vulnerability linked through to the job market, to the nature of, you know, rural to industrial transitions taking place in parts of the world, including sub-Saharan Africa. And the key thing in that is employment and youth and finding ways of bringing together those two things. So you're not trying to stop migration, but you're certainly trying to build um a sense of of aspiration fulfilled amongst a hugely youthful population in parts of of sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia and other parts of the world to reduce that more risky informal migration um, through those channels that that lead to to less positive outcomes. So I think understanding that bigger picture around the economies, the regional integration, as you mentioned, more in um, in sub-Saharan Africa, are really important. And I think that that came through certainly for me. You know, whether or not we deal with sort of insurance industries and insurance being an answer to some of the stress induced migration, some of the the disaster um, triggered migration, migration is a key point, too. Um, but ultimately, you know, we need to consider all the different types of migration here and be careful in the use of categories that came across very clearly bottom line is we need migration everyone needs migration and we need to govern it more effectively so i think the conversation has been hugely positive and i thank you all very much for attending and i thank the audience for their very useful questions as well thank you
0: all right thank you all for listening thank you to cgiar for co-hosting this event and for the panelists for their participation in time thank you all please visit global dot podcast.com to learn more about this series and find out how you can participate in the next live event. See you next time. Bye.